Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, a podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Do we have an uphill battle? Yes, we do, but we can make it. We can do it. We got to remain positive. I know that things right now seem to be bleak. Uh, we have COVID going on. We're still in lockdown. Uh, we still have you know riots in different cities or uh, looting and burning and, and the police public relationship seems to be at, a, at an all-time low, but that does not mean that we should embrace discouragement. We should keep on going on and pressing on. We have a great episode for you today. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Kanika Turner. She is obviously, as the title says, going to be speaking to us about her journey to becoming a doctor. Now, what the heck does this have to do with law enforcement? Nothing, <laughs> but it does have to do with the community. We're going to be talking about the community um, and uh, I really believe that it's important for people to have goals, vision. Um, while I don't claim to be uh, uh, religious anymore, I do think that there is a Bible uh, passage that is very, very relevant. It says, without a vision, the people will perish, right? So you've got to have a place that you have to go. You have to have something that you're striving for. And so whether it's going to be law enforcement, whether it's going to be a doctor, whether it's going to be a lawyer, whether it's going to be an astronaut, whether you're going to be uh, a musician or, or a basketball player, or whatever you're going to do. You've got to visualize yourself doing those things. So that's what Dr. T Kanika Turner did for us. Uh, and she's going to explain uh, how she had to continue to visualize and set her goals and set her priorities and all that kind of stuff. Great conversation that we had. So we're going to jump right into it. Ladies and gentlemen, please make sure that you rate these episodes. Subscribe and share. Rate, subscribe, and share. Share them on your Facebook. Share them on your email. Tell your friend. Tell a coworker. Tell your mama tell everyone uh, about these episodes and what Captain Hunter's trying to do and try to bridge that divide between the police and the public. Uh, you can also support the podcast through PayPal, Venmo, and Cash App. I need your, your love and I also need your support. PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. All of those are CPTL Hunter. Make sure you follow me on Instagram, CPTL Hunter. Facebook, we do Facebook Lives Mondays at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Captain Hunter's Facebook uh, page is the page uh, for that to watch me do live episodes. Those episodes are also streamed on Periscope and YouTube as well. Captain Hunter's podcast on all those platforms. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here's the episode. Dr. Kanika Turner, third timer on the show. You want to hear her bio and all the things she's done? Go back to the previous episodes where she explains her bio. Today, we're just going to talk about her journey to becoming a real live medical doctor. Here we go. So uh, welcome back to the show. You are a third timer and I really, really appreciate it. You're look, a third time? Oh, okay. Thank I you. Have to, I don't have to give you like the label of co Oh, yeah, it is. This is the third time. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> no, thanks for having me. I love uh, coming on these. Uh, I, I appreciate it. Um, so why don't you tell us what you've been up to in the last few days? Uh, I know we had you on for the coronavirus. What's new? What's old? I did see, uh, I watched a report just a few minutes ago on the news that uh, I guess that uh, some people are dying of actually blood clots with coronavirus. They're finding out that they've been that one of the problems or or symptoms or hypercoagulable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so in the ICU. Yeah. So tell us what's up with you and what are you doing? And <laughs> yeah. So definitely all this COVID nineteen uh, stuff is around. I think now the biggest push is with the uh, Black and Brown communities. Yeah. You know, since we're being you know disproportionately affected, so now doing a lot of focused messaging and um, 
making sure funds are allocated to the uh, community and just, you know, advocating for testing, things like that. So, um, you know, really big in substance use. And so now I'm kind of, you know, speaking loud on this COVID-19. But the other thing too, you know, I've been telling people, at least here in St. Louis, you know, the drug supply is, is changing slightly. So, you know, normally fentanyl was, was really around. Well, since the economy has been shut down, people on the street say it's difficult to get the fentanyl. So now the brown tar heroin is coming back. So my concern is, you know, we may see a rise in overdoses, but at least in Missouri, alcohol sales are up. Um, intimate partner violence is up. Yeah, um, yeah. So a lot, so even with the substance use, um, you know, mental health aspect, that has all increased. So, um, so I'm kind of doing a little bit of work, kind of combining the two. Um, um, and as far as just for practicing medicine, transforming to telemedicine visits, like that's completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, since I work at a FQHC, or a fellow qualified health center, uh, which I actually like the telemedicine visits. Uh, we still see limited in-person visits. So our OB patients, um, our kids under two that need vaccines. But for the most part, we're doing majority uh, telemedicine. So definitely transform um, the healthcare system and how we deliver care. So um, that's kind of a little bit I've been what I've been doing since the last time. <laughs> this whole this whole thing is like a cycle, right? Because back in the days, right, uh, doctors did house calls. Now they're doing them again. The, yeah, with the, the telemed- telemed- yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would say a lot of my patients actually like it. The only thing I see, I would love it. Oh my god! <laughs> right. I mean, right. The thing that I'm running into, um, like my older adults, you know, they with technology, they can't really work the phone for real, and so, yeah. you know, I have to do a telephone visit. Now the reimbursement, and they may not, you know, count for some insurance companies, but um, that's like the one issue I'm running into that my older patients who's not tech savvy. Um, but typically it's like I, I text them a link, they click on it, type their name in and then open up their camera. But some of them, they're just not good with a cell phone. So, yeah, um, yeah. otherwise all my other patients actually really like it. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah. I, I do think it, it'd be here to stay telemedicine oh, incorporated. I so. yeah. yeah. I think it'd be here to stay. So maybe it may be something where at least one or two office visits per year for stable people, but that I think that can be another um, modality that can be incorporated into um, how we uh, take care of patients. Yeah, I can definitely see that being here to stay. Um, yeah. Um, yeah my, especially my, with the substance use population too. Um, you know, SAMHSA kind of removed a lot of the stipulation that the first visit had to be face-to-face. And so now we can actually do telemedicine visits to actually treat for various um, substance use disorders. So um, that's a huge, um, huge thing in, in that community. Um, for a provider to be able to do that first visit without them coming in. Like that was a huge stumbling block for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say my mother, uh, uh, you know, she recently got a smartphone. And so we're, this is before all the virus stuff happened. And so we're sitting at dinner and she pulls out her phone and she's trying to type stuff in. I'm like, what, Ma, is that a smartphone? What is that? <laughs> so since she's saying, yeah, you know, I tried to call some friends of mine. And then they sent me a text message. <laughs> Start, I am losing it. <laughs> I'm like, what? You shouldn't have told me that. I'm like, did you respond? Yeah, I, I tried to respond. I'm like, my, you really shouldn't have told me that because I'm going to text you all the time now. That's to be t- <laughs> you, right, right. <laughs> you really shouldn't have told me that. <laughs> so then, so then we start doing stuff. I text her every now and then. And she's How like, old is she? She's 74 or something. Oh, wow. She's texting. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then, then she's, then she, uh, just, just like a week ago, she sent me a, a Facebook request, friend request. 
I call her up. I'm like, Ma, is this you or did you did you get hacked? She's like, Oh, uh, the 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 church that I go to, they wanted to start doing um, you know, video conferences and you gotta be yeah. on Facebook to get there. I'm like, man, you really shouldn't have told me that, Ma. I'm gonna <laughs> Oh wow! So that, yeah. so you that, know that, that that is a big push, but that's but that's good. She know how to do it. Listen, it's definitely good. I mean, my brother had to show her a lot of stuff, but I'm right. But I was just I was just I was just through. I was just dying. I was couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> so then then I go on my you know just trying to check my Facebook page, um, and then I see uh, you know my mother. She liked my Facebook page. I'm like, Ma, what are you doing? <laughs> You're liking pages? What are you doing? You know what? That's good. She's doing it because here in St. Louis. Um, we still have a lot of churches that's continuing, um, you know, to meet. And what so, up with these people? yeah, and so that's actually really good. So I've actually put some webinars together, working with a few of our local organizations, because um, for some of the smaller churches who may not have internet access or know how to use live streaming to, to help them out. So we got a few things in the works, but that's good that the church is, is doing that. Though. Yeah, uh, listen, I, I certainly agree. I'm glad that she's being tech savvy and stuff, but it, just to see your mother doing all this stuff. I mean, this is, this is a woman when we bought a VCR, I had to set up the VCR for, you know, so now she's, she's doing all this stuff, you know, so, so it's definitely good. And I, yeah. I actually kind of dread those days. And, you know, I mean, as your kids grow up, I can remember, like, we got some, we got some piece of equipment here. And I was always the one that did all that stuff. And my son was like maybe 14 or 15 or so. And he starts showing me, no, nah, dad's like this, that, and the other. I felt so stupid. I'm like, oh my goodness. I, I thought it was going to be like 85 when this happened. It's, it's here it is. I'm, I'm like 40. And, you're, and my kids are telling me what to do and stuff. <laughs> so so, so I, I de it definitely comes in, you know. So I definitely agree that with what you're saying. And I can't believe right. some of these churches are still having um, meetings. And stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've been following the stories. I mean, all across the country. Um, down in Texas and Florida, um, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's been kind of, but I mean, but on one hand, you know, like, when I was listening to some pastors, they were feeling that the church is in the central body, um, and they were um, saying that uh, they're, I said, they're really, really conservative, and I think when you have really strong religious beliefs, um, trying to get past that, I think that's, um, you know, I, yeah, like I don't want to talk against a pastor or a preacher, but listening to some of them, you know, really, really conservative. Um, translation: you know, We want that money. So uh, <laughs> I'll translate you know, that to church it's, speak. Yeah, it's, I mean, but you know, but even here in St. Louis, I mean, it's, it's some. It's it's uh, you got some churches that you know are totally against or don't really fully understand. It's like one thing I've been telling people. You know, a lot of my messages, you know, for us to stop saying social distancing and say physical distancing. I feel like people mm. hear social and they think that, well, we can't communicate or, you know, you're, you're trying to separate us. That's the devil dividing us. And it's, you know, but if you say physical distancing, I think it removes some of that stigma. Um, so one of those series, I'm actually doing a presentation Thursday. And the title of my talk is um, Helping Churches Stay Spiritually Connected While Maintaining Physical Distancing. And so with that talk, you know, there was some concern that churches may lose that, that spiritual connection to their members. And, you know, the whole idea behind social distancing is not to break that. You know, we actually, you know, encourage you to check on one another, do Zooms, you know, check in. Don't just completely get rid of being social. Just don't gather, you know, so we can help decrease the spread of the virus. And I think that's where some of the stumbling block is coming from. 
Um, you know, really conservative people look at this is, you know, the devil trying to separate um, people and, you know, God wants us to gather and, you know, be loved and greet each other with a hug and a kiss. You know, so it's kind of like if we say physical distancing, you know, maybe that may help with some of that stigma and, then, you know, provide the church with the tools it needs to be able to survive. So one of the webinars we have um, introducing um, technology into the church, so how to set up cash app Venmo so members can continue to pay their um, tithes and offering, helping those smaller churches get set up with Facebook Live or live streaming. So doing some things like that that kind of help, you know, some of the underlying causes that some of the pastors may have. So you will see. It's, it's a work in, pro in, in, in progress. So. Yeah, Let's no, I, I definitely think that that's, I definitely, I, I hear everything you're saying. And I think that that's the way to do it. And I think that if you can get past the pastor's conservative, and I do believe what you're saying, I was being funny uh, as far as. Uh, oh, no, 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 I, I don't. <laughs> no, well, well I, I mean, I do, I, I do agree that there are some people who want that, that physical. Yeah, I, I can definitely yeah. see that. But there's yeah. also some people that just say, listen, give well, me like, money. If you can get them to, to see we can do these other methods of PayPal and social and cash app and Venmo and stuff you can do, then maybe there'll be a little more at ease. So, right. Or they just want to kind of gather like that, uh, that the mayor of Las Vegas there and try to get people into, into the uh, casinos and, and make sure that we, did you hear that freaking fool? What is up with that? Just crazy. Um, yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just crazy. Yeah. Um, so I want to have you on again. Uh, so because there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about, but I think okay. uh, so. I wanted to talk about um, um, the history of black doctors, black female doctors. Once again, I was very impressed with you. Uh, I Thank actually you. went to school. I think I told you the story, but I'll tell it again. Uh, I went to I went to school with uh, a girl. She's actually a doctor now. She I think she's in the Detroit area now. Uh, I haven't seen her since high school, but I knew those. She was a she was a doctor or is a doctor, or I don't mm -hmm. know, I don't know. And um, so I went to school with another guy who's a doctor, black doctor, he actually lives in North Carolina now. And uh, I, had, I think I told you a story about my daughter who uh, we went to the emergency room when she was 13 or 14 years old, something like that. And the emergency room doctor comes in, it's a black female, I start nudging my daughter, hey, look, look, you know, this is a black doctor, you know, so my daughter's like, yeah, yeah and? <laughs> so, so um, but I just am really impressed because because we don't see it. Uh, you yeah, know, and true. unfortunately, we don't see it enough. And as I was trying to prepare for this, I, I was reading something uh, that was published in 2006, or I think it was maybe 2008 it was published. And it talked about some kind of, you might know about this, a Flexner report that was released. Uh, Flexner report is something that's released talking about how many doctors there are. And, to, and, and the publication talked about in 2006, 2.5 no, 2.3% of the doctors are black doctors. 2.3% mm -hmm. of, the, of the doctors in the U.S. Are, are, are doctors. And in comparison to 1910, when this Flexner report first started being initiated, was 2.5. So, right. so 1910 is 2.5, now there's 2.3. So there's less black doctors or people trying to be doctors today nice. in 2000, well, there was articles published in 2006 or 2006 or so. So let's let's talk about this and, and what we can do to, to get people to to, to, right. to want to be doctors and tell so tell us about your experience as being a doctor yeah it was it was a long a long journey so now I agree with you we, we still need more um, black doctors um, just across the country definitely working in urban areas working in clinics because the thing is too um, you know going into primary care as well so um, we definitely need more across the, the, the country. And I think there's multiple factors we can discuss. 
you know, as to why we may not be seeing that many. And there is a big push to recruit um, more uh, minority doctors into medicine just because, I mean, so many beneficial factors to have a diverse class body, you know, so many different things. But uh, with my journey, so, oh, this was, yeah, I've been, I was in school for 13 years since graduating high school. <laughs> so it was a long, long journey. I tell people, I, people ask, would you do it all over again? I wouldn't. It was, it was, it was pretty rough. <laughs> You know, Don't I do it say, I, yeah, I, I would say, you know, I, I support and encourage everyone else, but, you know, going through, you don't want to give up, you know, because you're, you're in it. Um, um, and I would say, I, I love my career. I love what I do. Um, you know, and I'll talk a bit more about, you know, some of my other background. I love it, but I think the process is so intense. And for me, I went through, um, so I had my daughter when I was 20. And when I had her, I was um, a sophomore in college. So, of course, it was some concern, you know, will I even still get into medical school? If I did, how will I have a support system in place, being a single parent? Um, so, it was a lot of things that came up. So, I remember for me, like, I talked to my parents, her other grandparents, like, you know, this is what, this is what I want to do. I'm going to need you all's help going through school. And, of course, thankfully, I had the support of all the grandparents involved um, to help me. And so, after high school, um, ended up going to St. Louis University. Uh, school of Med I actually went to a community college first. I should put that out there. Um, part of it was I was nervous about going to university, and then plus it was a big push. Well, get your generals out the way first, and then go to a university. Um, and honestly, it worked out for me, but I actually kind of wish I would have went straight to a university um, directly out of high school. I think the the scholarships uh, would have been greater for me, um, just because I was a transfer student. And I think when you come in as an incoming freshman versus transferring into a university the availability of funds is much greater for, for people. And so I actually completed um, my first years at a community college. I transferred into SLU. Um, when I transferred into SLU, I had junior credits, but SLU didn't accept um, some of my classes. And so I had sophomore classes. So my biology degree ended up being five years instead of four because I had to do a step back to do all the prereqs that SLU requires. So I had credits to be a junior, but I had to take sophomore classes. And so um, went to SLU. Um, my first year, it was a little struggle. I was like, I got, that's the first time I got a seat. Um, and it was a struggle just with adjusting. I had, you know, my daughter at the time, she was 10 months when I started at SLU. Cause I actually set out a year right after I had her and then went back to school when she was 10 months. And so it was some adjustment with having a 10 month old baby. Um, I had a full workload. So I was um, taking 15, I had 15 credit hours. And then I was working part-time in a lab. So I was a work-study student working in a hepatitis C lab. So, um, so for me, it was my, the, the guy I was working for, the principal investigator, he definitely, he was really nice and supportive. And I know he told me whenever I had finals coming around, whenever I had midterms, so my, my first responsibility is to my daughter. My second responsibility is to my classwork. My third is, is that job. And so he really, you know, when I need to study, he actually gave me that time off like the week before finals our midterms to study, um, and even in, in, in the lab when I was doing work, if I was you know doing an experiment or something, he was so supportive. I had my books out studying chemistry while I'm running this lab for him, you know. So I was utilizing and maximizing any um, opportunity I had um, during that time, and so I uh, I um, went through yeah, went through SLUG, got my biology degree. Um, my senior year, I actually applied for M, um, for MD program, I actually got denied. Um, so my first year trying is I did not make it. I actually, um, um, I didn't get accepted anywhere. So of course that was devastating to me. Did they tell you um, why you didn't get accepted? 
It was my MCAT score. So that's the, the test, you know, that's the standardized exam that all undergrads take to get into medical school. Um, and that's where some of this discussion with why we, there, you may not see as many minority doctors. So traditionally with standardized exams, um, minority students, I say, you know, African-American students, black and brown students tend to score um, a little bit less compared to the majority with how the test is written. And so, um, um, so once I started learning more about how standardized, standardized exams are written, um, it, you know, it made me feel great. So I would say my senior year, I graduated um, top of the class. I was um, summa cum laude. Um, so my GPA was 3.9, um, had honors. So I did, my, my classroom work was great. Um, great student. It was my MCAT score. And that was the reason why. And so what I did was um, somebody told me about doing a review course. So for me as a single parent, the review course was like $2,500. And I'm like, there's no way I can afford this. And I remember my, uh, the, the uh, professor I was working for in the Hep C lab, I remember when he pulled me aside and um, I was telling him, I was like, I don't have money for this. And he said, this is an investment in your future. He said, all the other students, this is what they're doing. And what he meant by that, you know, students interested in medicine, they went through this really great medical, uh, medical course, a review course, um, to teach them strategies, to go over the material, um, to give them a leg up. And I didn't know this information, but I remember when he told me, um, what I did was that next year when I filed my income taxes, all of my money went to paying for that review course. And I took it that summer, um, MCAT score went up, applied, I got accepted to St. Louis University. So, um, <laughs> so for me, you know, somebody who's a single parent, 2,500, that's a lot of money, but you know, he made a good point. And, and I would say he, he was a white doctor, uh, PhD, but he was so genuine in giving me that inside knowledge. I had no idea that that's what a lot of students were doing. And of course, at that time, you know, with the school I was at, their parents were paying for it. No one told me this information. I didn't know. And I find, you know, that's what I see a lot with our community is that we're not um, exposed to that information or that knowledge. And so we come up slack or just so happen somebody let us know. But that um, upfront knowledge is not always given to us. And like I said, I remember like we were standing right in his lab and he told me this. And I was like, that's, that's a good point. This is an investment in my future. And that's what I did. And I, the, uh, it was a summer course, June through July, set for the test in August. Um, I applied and I, I got accepted. My score shot up significantly because I did that review course. Now, see, that, that reminds me, and you probably know all about this as far as these uh, SAT scores and all this kind of stuff, right? It's not, you know, black and brown students bomb these tests or don't do very well on them not because they don't know the material, as you mentioned, right. you, or, or not smart enough to do it. As you mentioned, you're a summa cum laude, you know, 3.9 GPA, ace in the schoolwork, right? But the, the, the way the test is written, it's these, right. that's, that's the difference. And unless we get this information or unless black and brown students are able to get extra tutoring uh, right. for, for those SAT scores, then that's, that's, that's really, really right, the difference. Right. Or invest that right, invest that money to to do that review course and learn skills and strategies to be able to be a good test taker. Right. Yeah. So right. now, yeah, I I agree with you 100. percent So that was so that's what it, one of the things that it took for me and um, um and then like I said then I got accepted and and I'm actually glad it was actually a blessing how it worked out. So during that time, Central University they were in a transition. Um, the dean for the Office of Minority Health. He actually left and went to another school, and they brought on this new dean. 
when they brought on this new dean, he actually um, somehow got all the scholarship money available for a lot of us. When I came on, I actually ended up getting, I think it was like $20,000 in additional funds that wasn't even available the year before. So, you know, everything works out for a reason. And so when I got accepted, I remember he, um, I got my acceptance letter in April. Um, then I remember he called me like a month later saying that how SLU gave me all this extra grant money. Because at that time, tuition was like, I think it's 40000 a year. And then um, you live off of 20000 so, you know, taking out 60000 a year. But they had a $20,000 um, scholarship that they found for me. And so, um, okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Only 60000 huh? Only. And that was years ago, right? Only. Right. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure it's more expensive. I mean, my, my student loan debt is, is, is ridiculous right now. So, but even, but even that though, you know, I hear people say when you're a doctor, you can afford it. And it, I mean, I would say honestly, that is true, but would I prefer not to owe back, you know, $300,000? Yes. But there are programs in place, like, you know, the public service loan forgiveness, working in an underserved clinic. So there's different things you can do to help get, you know, loan repayment and not just be focused on, well, I'm going to owe this much money back, you know? So there, so I, I do agree with that, that as a doctor, you are investing in your education. Um, you will make money to, to pay the monthly amount. Yeah, that's see, uh, I, I often think about going back for my PhD, but I just don't want to go, I just don't want to owe money. And I, that's what's really, <laughs> that's really what's holding me up. I mean, uh, maybe I'll just think like that. But it may be a little different yeah, with PhD. I think they may have, um, oh, don't just check into it. Don't tell me. Maybe a little different. Because that, that, that'll discourage <laughs> me even more. <laughs> I, I, I really won't different. go for it then. <laughs> you should. Yeah, you should check into it. So, but then after that, so then I end up doing the MD, um, MPH program. And so, now, um, actually. You guys break down with MP. Oh, was, yeah. Uh, yeah. You're right. You're right. I'm, I'm okay. a little slow here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So MD, that's um the you know that's a degree, medical doctor. Then the I MD didn't know that one. I knew that one. Is a, is a master's of uh, <laughs> public health. But how okay. to be thorough? How to be thorough? Okay. But yeah. So MPH is a master's of public health, and so I did um my first year working on the MPH degree. Went to medical school. Then my fourth year of medical school, I finished up the master's degree. So when I graduated, um in 2014, I actually had both degrees. So I had a master's of public health and an MD degree at the same time and you can so. do that you can do that in two years you can do the md in two years no no so it was it was um total of five years so the first year my master's four years of medical school but my fourth year of medical school there were a few more classes you go back and complete um so the net way it's a total of five year program okay yeah. okay so uh, yeah. uh so you go to school you get your bachelor's degree and yes. where'd you get your bachelor's degree chemistry biology biology get your bachelor's degree in biology then it's another four years of medical school Yep. But you had to do five years because they kind of jerked you around it. No, no. So I did. So I did five years for my undergrad, for my biology degree, because oh, I went to oh, community okay. college, right? So typically, you know, a, a BA degree, um, you know, that's four years. But four since years. I did the transfer, right? But for medical school, now, if I wouldn't have done the master's degree, it's just a straight four years. So for okay. me, I just added the extra year because I want my master's degree, um, which some people do that. Yeah, okay. you can do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, actually, I, I, you know, I've always, when I was an undergrad, I got exposed to public health. And so even now, you know, I incorporate my MPH degree into a lot of this outreach that I do. So for me, I love having my master's of public health, that background um, is really beneficial for me. It makes, so you, some it, makes you, have it. it makes you seem more, more knowledgeable, right? When I, <laughs> I got a master's degree. <laughs> I guess. Oh, yeah, I guess. I'm a doctor. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what <laughs> i guess <laughs> i really know what i'm talking about because i have a master's degree right, I have a master's <laughs> degree. <laughs> right. right right okay. Okay. so yes i have that and then um so then after you finish medical school then you have to do your residency 
So um, there's different residency programs. So I'm family medicine trained. Um, so my program was three years. So let's say if you go into a primary care residency, so internal medicine, pediatrics, family medicine, those are typically three years. Um, if you want to do um, a surgery subspecialty, those can range anywhere from five to seven years, even eight years. Um, and then some people also do fellowships after residency. And so I stopped once I finished residency. So I graduated my residency program in 2017. Um, then I started practicing, you know, as a, a full-time physician. I was an attending um, um, at one of at, at the clinic here that I'm still employed at. So um, okay, uh, so so. And how does one, I think you answered this, how does one support themselves while they're going through all this? You had to take out loans to support. So in, right, so in medical school, you live off a loan. So definitely it's a budget. And then some people, you know, parents will help them out. But typically you live off of loans or, you know, you have, you know, parents um, who, who are able to help you and support you. Um, I, didn't, I didn't have that. So I, 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 was, I had to budget every, every semester for my daughter and myself. Um, so pretty much $20,000 a year. And, you know, I had to budget and... Um, is that a year or semester? No, that's a year for the whole school year. So I got $10,000 per semester um, to live off of. And that will cover, um, I mean, I also had to cover, I mean, medical school, I didn't have too many books to buy. Everything was pretty much online. You got, you know, paper, um, your little manual, the syllabus, you know, printed out for you. Um, but the 10000 pretty much that covers, you know, everything that you would need. And then over the summer, um, I looked for internships to kind of help provide some income during the summertime. So I think my, uh, I think the first year, I did some type of summer program, which I made like 2,500. Um, the second year, I remember I was studying for my step exam. And so I had to like live off of uh, money then. Cause your second year at that time, your third year of medical school started early. Um, so third and fourth years when you're like doing your clinical rotation. So your first two years of medical school is pretty much strictly book work. Um, you may have a little bit of like clinical experience with shadowing, things like that. But your third and fourth year is when you really get into the wards, learning the, the, the clinical side of medicine, um, starting at five o'clock in the morning, rounding at the hospitals, things like that, getting your own patient load, typically two or three patients, um, you know, that a, a medical student will carry. So third and fourth year is more so that clinical part um, that you get into that everybody, you know, wait on. <laughs> now, they don't, um, uh, as far as as far as having your own patients, right? The patients don't know that you're a student, right? You, so you know? no, so no, so they, so, so they will. So what I, what we used to say, you know, a medical student or student doctor, so how it works, so medicine, that there's a hierarchy to this. So medical student, you have a resident, you have a, uh, even within a residence, you have a first level resident, an intern, typically a senior resident who kind of runs the team that you have an attending. So like, for example, as a resident, I mean, even now I'm actually on the, uh, working with residents right now. So as a medical student, um, the resident will assign me two patients to go see, but the resident is also seeing those patients too. So my role is strictly teaching. I don't put in orders. Um, the resident is the one that's putting in the orders, but when you round, it's a whole team. So as a, as a medical student, I will have to get there early in the morning, do all my chart review on my patients, review um, labs and imaging, go see the patient, do my physical exam. And then I would typically talk to the resident doctor who um, was either like the intern or a senior resident to review my plan before the attending would come. So the attending doctor is kind of like the boss man. Um, the attending will round every day. Um, 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 you all as a team will go and see the patient. Once it's your turn, you had to present the patient. 
And so it's a standardized process of presenting. And for me, like I get shy sometimes when there's a lot of people around. Um, you get put on the spot. So it used to be this thing called pimping. They actually got rid of it, but it was this concept called pimping in medical school. Yes. The idea behind pimping is... Yeah, Who it's, thought it's, of that term? Yeah, if, you, if you actually Google this and look it up, like it, it used to be really bad, but it's I'm, called I'm not, I'm not going to Google that. I'm, I, yes. I, don't want, I don't want any viruses. And I remember. Like so, so what this is, this is saying that it was um, a resident or um, an attending can ask you questions on the spot. Back in the day, it used to be really bad. Like it used to be... You know, I heard stories of like attendees hitting medical students on the hand, um, but it but it's, 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 it's very intimidating. So it's called pimping. So let's say I present my patient. Um, the attendee may ask me a question. It's pretty much a way to see, have you been reading and studying on this patient? Um, it, it definitely can humiliate you because they can ask you questions. You can do all this reading and they can ask you a question on something. And if you don't know it, um, I mean, it's just, it's just kind of, internally it makes you feel bad but i will say you will never forget the answer to that question again right. so um so a lot of medical schools um and residency programs they kind of lighten up on it a little bit but they still ask questions in a teaching environment but it used to be called pimping um you know you say that the, the attendee pimp you or the resident pimp you and the idea was you know they'll ask you specific questions either you know about the patient or about the diagnosis your plan um they may ask you what does this lab mean you know, so it, it was a way to see, you know, do you know the information you need to know and you're put on the spot. Uh, I got yeah, it was, it was, it was intense. I think that was the one thing, definitely it correlates to your confidence level. Cause even like now when I, when I train, I talk to medical students, you know, I tell them read, look up information as an attending. I want to know that you are actively reading, trying to seek out this information. Don't just come and tell me, I don't know. These are people lives. Like you need to have a plan even if you're absolutely wrong, at least I know you have read up on this topic. You have some idea what you're talking about. You know, like I wouldn't want you to start a medication on somebody and it's meant for diabetes and you think it's for hypertension. You know, these are things, it's a way of, of teaching and helping to train, but it's also a way to build confidence too. Because the more you read, the more confident you will feel, you know, in developing your, your plans and your assessments. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I can definitely yeah. see that. Um, so when you were going through school, how many other black people, black females in particular, even even Hispanic, yeah. black and brown people? So I will say um, in my class, so I started uh, medical school in 2010. We had 10 um, minority students. 10. Out, of, out of how many? Uh, 165 students, 160 or 65 students. And the 10 and were black or, or just minority? 10 that were black. 10, 10 that were black. Okay. Yeah, we didn't have any Hispanic my year. Um, yeah, we were considered the minority. Um, and like I tell people, I would never forget my first week of medical school. Um, I think it was the first time I actually uh, encountered um, feelings of uh, like prejudice and racism. And really, um, yeah, yeah. So, so my class was the first class in like 15 or something years that St. Louis University had that many minority students at one time. Typically, it was one or two per year um, you know, that they allowed into the school. So my class came, and it wait, was wait, a shock. That, that they allowed? Yeah, so why well, would say, I shouldn't say allowed, that they, okay. um, that, well, here's the thing. I don't, I, I don't know if it was allowed. I would say this. The, 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 the big thing I always hear is that, um, you know, they don't have that many minorities applying to, to the school. So definitely the MCAT was a cutoff. And, and if you go based off of score only, you're gonna miss a lot of qualified applicants to medical school 
if you cut off based off of MCAT. So some medical schools, if you don't have that threshold of a 30 on your MCAT, they're not even looking at your application. So if you look at the distribution, how many black and brown students actually reach MCAT of a 30 to even get their application looked at? You know, and so I think, you know, that was a major transformation, you know, throughout the medical school system. I don't think they're as rigid as they used to be. And I think they understand, you know, some of the needs behind it. But that was one thing that kind of selectively, you know, guided your class selection. If you had an MCAT cut off and you already know historically, you know, um, black and brown students average scores 25, 26, those elite medical schools who score, you know, want a 30 and above, those students not getting into those schools, you know? And so that's where you have development you know, on McCary and, you know, um, Howard University, all of those schools, medical schools developing. So in that way, that allowed entry um, for a lot of um, um, medical students, minority students to actually get training to become a doctor. So thankfully it was SLU, um, theirs is a little bit different. I think some of the other medical schools, you know, changed some of their, their um, cutoff criteria. But I would say historically for many, many years, SLU only had um, about two or three students. I don't know exactly the, de the details, you know, did they, uh, was it true that they only had so many students applying to the school? Um, I don't know their level of detail. I just know if you look at the class pictures, um, typically you will only see two or three um, black people in their class. So my class in 2010 was the first class in which um, we had 10 um, out of I think 160 or 165. And a lot of that was my dean at the time, Dr. Raley, he was a big advocate with making sure we increase our diversity among our medical school population. So by the time he retired, he retired last year, they had up to 25 to 30 students admitted per year after all of his advocacy um, and work that he was doing on the forefront. Um, we're getting more minority um, students into, into school. So definitely him being there was, was a huge plus for St. Louis University. So the cutoff with the MCATs, do you think that if more uh, minority students would have known about what you found out about, about this, this certain sectional study? I think it's, yeah, I, I think the message is getting out now. I think I just didn't know. I think there are, um, there are other programs in place now. They have like 18 month long programs. Um, like, like special, they're not really pre-med, they're called pre-matriculation programs that some schools offer where, you know, once you graduate undergrad, if you know you're interested in medicine, there's like a specialized fast track type program where you can do that and then you'll, you know, automatically guarantee interviews at certain medical schools. So there's other things that have been created. Okay. Um, and I don't know if all students are aware of it. I think now there's a lot of talk and a big movement, um, you know, to make sure that we, you know, increase our uh, workforce, our workforce. So, um, um, at least on the SLU side, and I think, you know, when I talk to some medical students, a lot of them are already, or undergraduate students, a lot of them are already being exposed to, to different avenues to prepare for the MCAT. So I want to talk about this racism that you faced while you were there. What, what, oh, yeah, that week, my first week, th yeah. That, th that these people who are going to be doctors are going to be then treating. <laughs> I would say, you, you know, I, I, I would say this. I think uh, being a minority in medicine, Somewhere along your career, you're going to face it. Um, this is, these are conversations even now with um, a lot of my colleagues who are attendees or specialists. Um, it's, it's still the same thing. That even, to, I mean, even to this day, I even still, you know, experience some of it, even after the degrees behind my name. Um, but yeah, but my experience, um, so I remember we were walking into the school, um, getting ready to go into lecture, um, and the security guard stopped us. Um, it was like four of us walking together and the security guard stopped us um, 
and we had to show our IDs. And but right behind us was a group of white students that walked in. IDs wasn't visible. They didn't get stopped at all. Um, but the security guard was shocked, I guess, that we were students coming in there. But we had to show our IDs and sign in. And the white students, um, they went right past us and went into the lecture hall. Um, no IDs, same thing. We all come, you know, it, yeah. And, and I remember, you know, it, it was kind of like, well, well wait, you know, I'm, I'm a medical student as well. But to me, it was like I had to show proof that I was a medical student. And my white colleague, you know, walked in and didn't have to show this proof like I did. I and mean, it was four of us. Um, there was another incident that happened. We were, um, so um, later on in the week, the second incident that happened. So of course, all of us knew each other. So like the upper class medical students knew who the incoming, you know, um, 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 first year students were. It wasn't that many of us. So all of us, you know, they, they definitely sought us out, introduced themselves. We kind of had our own little, you know, groups called Student National Medical Association. A lot of medical schools have their organization on campus. Pretty much it represents minority students, not just black and brown, um, but you know, you're minority. And even if you're a nominal, you can join the organization. So all of us knew each other. And um, I remember we were standing on the steps and they were like third and fourth year medical students. And they was giving us some advice, you know, get this book to study from. Um, this is a, this teacher here is pretty difficult. And um, security was calling us again. And um, the guys, it was two older guys, you know, they laughed about it and was like, yeah, you know, they get ready to call the police on us. And I just remember I'm like, we're standing around, you know, just a group of students, no harm, we're, we're on the campus, and security felt threatened that, and at that time, it was it was eight of us at that time, just socializing around lunchtime, you know, catching up with one another, how did class go this week, you know, not being loud, nothing like that. Um, and I just remember when security came out, we left, and of course, we ended up meeting up later on, but it was just kind of like, wow, we couldn't even congregate on, on campus and just you know, talk and check in one another, like it have, you have to be fearful about something. So um, listen, my first week, I would never, never forget the first week, you know, being asked for my ID and, you know, just kind of like, it's unfortunate that I had to prove, you know, why I had to be there, you know? Are you a police officer who's taken a promotional exam one or two times and has not fared so well? Do you know someone who wants to become a police officer, but is not sure about how to go about the process? or maybe they've also taken the exam and not fared so well. Are you the head of an organization who's looking for leadership training for yourself or for your employees? LMH Police Training and Consulting Services has those services as well as more. My services can be offered through online virtual training or one-on-ones. I even have online courses for those who are on the go. You can buy my police officer preparation course, or you can purchase my promotional exam course all online. All of this is available and more at hunterpolicetraining.com. And remember, I'm here to prepare you for your future today. So, did you ever complain about that, or anybody ever say anything to the? So we 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 did, um, and not, and not only that, sad but a sad thing about it, it actually happened to um, um, a few other classes behind me. The same thing, starting off medical school. Um, the first week. And so um, at this point, I don't know if they fixed the situation, but I do remember medical students coming behind me saying the same thing that the security was stopping them when they're trying to go into class, um, asking them for their IDs. And I think at that point, I remember telling our deans, our deans got involved with it. Um, so I just remember it stopped happening to me. It was really that first week. So I think that they end up, they did do something about it, but I do remember those complaints had continued even after, you know, I was a third and fourth year medical student. I remember telling the students, like, you know what, 
just, you know, go, go talk to the dean or, you know, let them know, you know, look, I'm a medical student too, but it's like, why do you have to prove or show proof that, you know, you, you belong there, you know, I have to show my ID and sign my name down, you know, put my name down. So, yeah. um, yeah, I, I, if those are the worst stories and they're certainly terrible. Um, yeah. But you didn't, you didn't face anything as far as other students, right? Um, the biggest thing I think I faced was because I was the only person with a child. Um, okay. So yeah, I was, a, I was the only single parent. And so I remember um, getting a lot of questions. Who, who watched your child? And how do you study and you have a child? And where did she go? And I mean, people just like shocked or didn't know, you know, uh, I knew what I was doing. And, and I remember when I used to do really well on my exams, I remember students being like, oh, you did, you know, kind of like, just because I have a child, that means that I'm incompetent. It means I'm dumb or something. Like, you know, like wh- why does me being a single parent in your mind make you think that I'm I'm uh, I'm less than you or that I I can't achieve the same grades as you? And so I think that was the biggest thing for me being a single. I mean, I was like a single black female um, at a predominantly white medical school. And then I think after after about the first few months, once people kind of got you know got a chance to know me, my you know your class, you take the same class with your whole class. Um, that stopped, but definitely up front, people didn't know, um, you know, what it meant to be a single parent. You know, they asked me questions, where's her dad? And I wouldn't answer those questions, like, it's none of your business, but, you know, really trying to get into my business, figuring out, you know, you know, details of my life. <laughs> Do you, um, I forgot the question I was going to ask. Uh, I forgot the question. I'm going to have to edit all this out. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's okay. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I, I do know a lot of times when people, I would, I wouldn't let pe- you, you, it's very unfortunate. We had to be very protective of who and what we are um, yeah. and, and, you know, our life experiences, because even though there's other people with life experiences, uh, they, they, they don't feel as if, as if it's a stereotype. So there's a single mom or single dad in any profession, right? right? So they don't, they don't think that, but we had to be so secretive about who and what we are. Um, a story that I have as far as when I came on. Now, I, I came on as a police officer. I did not have uh, any kids, but I can remember we had an orientation type of thing where these are the new cops and we got to, all got to fill out paperwork and, and uh, you know, who, any beneficiaries and everything. And so they passed the beneficiary paper and marked down any kids you have and your wife and all this kind of stuff. I wasn't married. I didn't have any kids. So they're like, make sure you mark them down. And he's like looking around. You know, people in here don't have any kids. Wow. And I'm like, is this really what I'm walking into? <laughs> you wow. Know? So, so, they, so they thought she had like 10 kids. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, like... <laughs> yeah. So, and then after that, after that, uh, you know, one of the guys, we, we came on together, he, he retired a little bit before I did, but he came up to me. He's like, yo, how'd you feel? He's a white guy. He's like, how'd you feel after that? We all know he's talking about you. It's like, I know he's talking about me too. Right, <laughs> right. You know, so, right. so, so that kind of stuff is, is definitely prevalent and definitely something we, you know, other people have situations and problems that, that they go through, but it's just not stereotypical like yeah. us. Do, was there was there any ever any opportunity or any opportunities part of the wrong word? Was there any time that people thought that you were there because of uh, affirmative action or anything like that? Did anybody have? Any- um, you know, if they did, they didn't say it to me. <laughs> you know, because I think after the first few months. Um, um, one thing I will say, I feel like the, the deans were really supportive of my class. I will say that. I felt like, at least from that standpoint, 
I had huge support. So no matter, you know, what the students said to me, um, thankfully the deans I had, they understood the importance of diversity. Um, they made sure all of us were supported. So I think that was one thing that did um, stand out that I really liked about St. Louis University is that they, you know, supported me in that area. So even if a student did, I felt comfortable, you know, at going to say something and getting some action taken. Like, I guess I didn't feel like I was, I was at a place where I couldn't speak out on it. I was at a place where I could. Um, and I think that's really huge for, you know, somebody going, looking at, you know, looking at medical schools, you want to make sure you have uh, faculty that's diverse, somebody who can be in your corner and that can support you while you go through that process. Because um, somewhere along the line, like I tell them, you're going to face whether it's residency um, or even when you're, you're an attending, you're going to face some, some something like that. Um, so I, I would say, I don't know, it didn't come to my attention if, if, if they did, but I do, um, I remember I had this one incident that took place when I was, um, I was a third year medical student, I was rounding, and I remember um, this particular resident, um, blonde hair, blue eyes, and she didn't like the way I pronounced the word. And she told me- Library? Yeah, right. She told me the way I pronounced the word, she looked me in my face and said, um, the way you pronounce, it was the word hungry. Um, she said, yeah, she didn't like the way I pronounced it and wanted to come tell me. And she's like, you know what? It made you sound dumb. And I looked. I mean, she said other stuff too. Nothing related to my presentation, uh, my plan, nothing like that. It was a completely, she had a problem with the way that I spoke. And I, and I do have a St. Louis accent. And it was purely, she had an issue with my accent. And um, I remember... I remember walking out. So of course I I cried. I didn't cry in front of her. You know, I took it and I was like, okay, all right. And I remember I walked right out the room and one of my um, fellow medical students who was a white girl, she saw me in the stairwell. And I remember I'm um, actually ended up becoming friends with her even before that. And uh, she saw me and I told her what happened. And she's one like she was a Christian, like we really got along. And she was like, What? Like she even knew that she was um being prejudiced towards me and biased because of the way that I spoke. And so I remember I went over to my deans, my one dean, he was in a meeting, went found a different dean, he was in a meeting. So the dean I did find in his office, since I came in crying, the secretary ran and got him and he put me in his office. Do you know he ran and got the other two deans, pulled them out of their meetings, like Kanika's in here crying, we gotta meet with her right now. I had three deans in there within about 15 minutes of that incident happened. They called the program director at the, at the school, um, they had me write out the whole event, but when I say I was supported, I mean, it was no joke, all three of them in the office, and, and I would say all of them were ticked, and they understood, I didn't have to, I, I told them what happened, I didn't even have to explain the case as to why I felt this was something racially motivated, all of them knew right off the bat, it was one black dean, two white ones, they all knew exactly what this was, and I would say, I mean, they, they went to bat for me, um, and even with this particular uh, resident, so they got the, the school involved. So it was, it, was, it was a whole issue. They actually brought this to her attention. And the only thing I will say, it was one person to try to step in and protect her and say, um, oh, she's not like that. She didn't really mean it like that. Um, and so that, so it ended up turning out they wanted her to do like cultural competency. But then it was some time that went past, like the deans got involved again. But I will say that they took it serious when I came back over there and told them, this is what this this person just said to me and pretty much because of the way that I, I i pronounce my words the way that i talk i speak she's telling me that i'm dumb because of that 
you know, and so it was, it was really, um, yeah, I think that was one, one instance in which I felt like, you know, yeah, I, I got supported. They, they didn't play. They, you know, came out their meetings and, and helped me out. So, and, um, and they actually pulled me off the rotation because I didn't want to work with her anymore. And they was fearful that something else may happen. And so they, uh, they pulled me off the rotation. Two of my deans gave me their cell phone numbers. If you have any problems, again, you call me uh, right away. And then um, it was crazy. Once I graduated, this particular doctor started working at the hospital um, that, that, uh, that I started working at. And I saw her in passing. I didn't say nothing to her. She didn't, she didn't say nothing to me. Um, I'll pass her quite a few times. And I didn't say any to, anything to her. Like, I keep walking. She'll keep walking. And, and, that, and that was that. But yeah, but it was, it was purely... She had a, I mean, it was other stuff that she said to me too, but it was just, it was, she felt the need to tell me to my face, you know, all of that, so. Well, it's a good thing you didn't drag her up and down that hallway. I mean, yeah. <laughs> am yeah. I and, dumb and, now? And that's, that's, that's the thing that we, we, we joke that, you know, you have to maintain your professionalism because then you don't want to become the angry black girl, you know. Right, If right, you right. say something and correct somebody on something, now you're the angry black girl. And it's, no, I'm not an angry black girl. I'm, I'm correcting you on something you were wrong with. And even now, you know, with me being in, in, in a management position, it's the same thing. You know, I had an incident that came up and I had to address the situation and somebody tried to tell me that, you know, the email I sent was, um, it was very mean. So I had the person pull up the email and I said, can you read me what was mean on this email? She couldn't find out one thing that was mean on there. So, so, so I asked her, so it's a problem that it came from me as a corrective action? So what was mean about the email? No answer at all. So nothing was mean about it. It was the fact that you can't take correction from me being a manager um, from you. Uh, correction, it have to be, oh, I'm an angry black person. No, it's, it's nothing about being angry. I'm in a position to where I can correct you just like anybody else. And when she looked at it, you, you can't point out to me what I was mean about, what I was snappy about. We looked at the email, pointed out, and nothing was ever to be pointed out from that. So I think that's other issues too, like microaggression in the workplace, um, I think those are other things that I feel like so it, it doesn't stop. I think you learn how to navigate the system and you learn how to professionally um, address the, the issues. And I think now with so much as a big movement and a push for health equity and diversity and inclusion that, you know, now I'm in a position where I will speak out on it. I can identify it and name it and say, no, you were wrong in this area. I no longer have to be quiet about it. And I think that's the thing you know, I, a skill I had to pick up on and not just hold things in, but I can hold people accountable for how they treat me because of my, the color of my skin. Oh, that's, that's, that's awesome how you, how you worded that. Yeah. Um, some people aren't able to articulate things uh, now, but now because of all this cultural diversity training, now we know, okay, that's exactly, you know, what I'm talking right. about right there. So, so, you know, I was an implicit bias instructor um, before I left. And so I assume now that many doctors are getting implicit bias trainings and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah they are. So I think, I know definitely going through residency, um, I had it. Um, a lot of organizations are also making it mandatory now. And so um, I think now that's becoming more of a, a common theme, theme to, to have that incorporated and to recognize that. So um, I think there's still a lot of work to do, not only the training and recognizing it, but, you know, it's, it's changing um, mindsets. It's changing that old, um, the uh, old white man thinking. Um, I mean, um, it is. <laughs> it is. Um, you know, I mean, and, and you, you know, even with this COVID stuff going on right now, you know, there's, um, you know, all this money that the state is receiving. And like, I just found out today, 
the decision makers are all white men at the table. So, you know, um, one area in St. Louis, I mean, there's a huge population of black and brown people. Why do we not have any representation at that table when it comes to making these financial decisions? Why is it all white males at this table? You know, and I think that's, you know, a big push. So like, I was told about this today. So now there's a big push to, you know, to contact certain people to say, look, you need to revisit who's making up this committee because there's a fear if you have all white men that's making decisions for a community that's predominantly black, you're definitely gonna miss stuff. You're gonna miss a whole lot of things. You're gonna miss the point. Um, people are gonna continue to die. Money's not gonna be, you know, put into the community where it needs to be. Um, you know, and even now you still have people who think that they, we see the numbers and the data, but you still have people that's resistant to the idea that this is, you know, disproportionately affecting black people. And to think, you know, I keep hearing, you know, they're, they're blaming it on the, the individual behavior of the person. So they're saying, well, black people more likely, you know, have bad diets. We, you know, um, have higher rates of diabetes and hypertension. Yes, that's, that's exactly true. But let's not blame the individual for the health behavior they have to be exposed to. So if you look at how, you know, in our cities, what redlining, how, um, you know, we were more likely to be put into neighborhoods where we had to live, you know, in apartments, close quarters. So if a virus is going to spread, it's going to spread among people where there's so much, um, you know, where, where we're in close contact with each other. You have multi-generational families, you know, 10 and 12 people living in one household. How can they maintain social distancing? If one person in that house become infected, that whole house is going to get exposed. You know, but who make these decisions? When you look at cities who have really strict redlining, you know, if you look at other things in predominantly black and brown cities, you have where your liquor stores more, more likely to be distributed at. You know, now we have a rise in alcohol sales. We have an increase in substance use disorders. Um, so it's so many different factors. And then when you look at just chronic stress as related to trauma and racism over years and years and years, um, even poor access to, you know, quality foods, how can you blame the individual themselves only for diabetes and hypertension? We don't have the things, the infrastructure in place to help somebody make a healthy behavior. You know, I tell people, you know, I work with medical students, a lot of my pregnant moms who get food stamps. Of course, they're going to go and buy, well, they buy the chips, they buy the juice, they're feeding whole families. Look how expensive it is to, to eat off of whole foods, you know? So it, it's a lot, a lot of that that needs to be unroofed and, and discussed and not just blame it on the individual for making, you made a poor decision. Well, the infrastructure wasn't in place for you to make probably the right decision. I mean, who says a poor decision anyway? So it's like a really big push to more and more I read about institutional structural racism and how that has played a part with COVID-19 and how our communities are being affected. Yeah, no, that's definitely a good point. Um, by the time I released this, um, I already uh, did an episode with another uh, sociologist, who we, and we talked about exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So it's it's definitely definitely something that I hope that can be addressed going forward. Once this whole thing dies down, that we you know we have to really do something about this. And that's one yeah. thing I, I want to do an episode on um, on Whole Foods because uh, I myself uh, have just gone vegan. It's only been a week. <laughs> so I've just gone. Uh, Congratulations. So I, yeah, it's, 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 I, I'm a weekend, no meat. Uh, so, um, but yeah, so it's really, really something. And I always think about, you know, exactly what you mentioned, that if a mother, a single mother, I was raised by a single mom, by, by a mother who raised, yeah, single mom who raised two boys. Um, and so, uh, you know, to go to the store and, and, and off the, would she have been able to raise us off of vegan lifestyle or just fruits and vegetables? Right, um, right. You know, that that's a challenge. That's one thing I want to address, you know, because we know that it's, it's really is a problem. I had another brother on, 
uh, who he was talking about, you know, he was uh, at one time uh, in the custody of the state. He comes out and now he's out free. Um, and now he's got to get his health back together because while he was inside, he saw so many different people who were coming down with diabetes and high cholesterol yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And this is the state giving you food. Right. right. So, so, mm -hmm. and so this is a problem. Our, our eating yeah. habits and, and all this is a problem. So how do we correct this? And if, and in order to correct it, obviously the, 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 the remedy is fruits, good, healthy fruits and vegetables. Right. And how do you do that? If you're, if you're poor and, and, you know, living. Right. Uh, right. Know, if the nearest grocery right. store is 20 miles away and you rely on public transportation, yeah. I wouldn't even catch two or three buses, you know, like yeah. you're going to go to your local corner store and get what's available or your local yeah. grocery store, yeah. you know, get, and get, you know, what's, what's available. So even though, you know, we're, we're talking about that, I feel like some of that can, you know, we're, we're going through medical school, um, some of the things that, that were in place were decisions based off, you know, uh, admission decisions and, and criteria that was designed by predominantly white males back then as far as what's the cutoff for an MCAT. Um, even for a lot of these standardized exams, writing the questions. Who write the questions? It's predominantly whites that write the questions for that. And so, you know, our thinking process, one of my, my deans actually gave me an example. They did a, um, a study. I can't remember where this was. I, I, Bailey kind of remember everything that he told me at that time, but I do remember he used the example of couch and sofa that they gave once they, they, it was the, the same test. They just changed the word couch and sofa. And once they changed the word, black students got the question right. Um, compared to before they got the question wrong and it had to do with just the word of couch and sofa, you know, and even there may be other words like that too, that if that's heard, not, you know, I, our, our common language, that yeah. we use, you may not even know what that is. You know, I, I heard the same thing about uh, about the SAT test, and the, yeah. the word was uh, veranda and porch. Mm. And so my grandfather used to call it a veranda, right. but other people would just call it a porch. A porch, right? Right, right. So <laughs> and I'm like, and my and I, the only reason I knew that word is because my grandfather would say them. But everyone else, if I said veranda, go out in the veranda, nobody would know what I'm talking about. What is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we don't have one of those, daddy. Yeah. Right, right, <laughs> you right. Know, so, so, so definitely, I definitely see the point. I definitely see the point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'll say overall, like I said, I wouldn't do it again, but... <laughs> yeah, I, I, I wouldn't do it again, but um, but it, it was it was an experience. I wanted to ask you about... Um, uh, we talked about just being black, but let's talk about being a female. Is there any kind of sexism going on with that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think the thing for me, um, you know, even now when I round, isn't it? So when I say I'm an attending, that's pretty much like, you know, I, I run the service. Um, either I, I have never been accused of being a doctor. I'll tell you that. Um, if somebody <laughs> see me, I get, um, you know, social worker, which is, there's nothing wrong with these other areas. Um, but during my career, um, social worker, physical therapist, they, somebody thought I was that. They thought I was a part of um, the clergy at the hospital, a nurse. Um, and when I correct people and say, no, I'm a doctor, I get, oh, you are? It, it never fails. I get that, you know, that, that look. And it's like, well, why, why am I getting that look? You don't think I can be, you know, you know I have to show my ID like, no, I'm, I'm Dr. Turner. Um, and so, uh, uh, and I guess that that's whether, you know, I guess male or female, but for me, I've never been accused of being a doctor. Um, I think as far as with the sexism part, um, a lot of it, I feel like it comes from, um, the white males in my field. Um, and I would say whether, you know, I'm a white 
black person, I think there are white women who also still experience some of the same issues. Because um, in general, medicine is still predominated by white males um, in all areas of medicine. Um, that's, that's just how it is. So just even if you just look, you know, at females in general, you know, us entering the field, um, I think across the board, we still, you know, experience some sexism uh, related to that. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's still there. I just think, I think for some people, the thing to stand out with me being um, not only just a female, but I think being a black female, um, I think it's, it's both for some people. Um, but I always get that, oh, that little, that shock mm -hmm. look. And we, we tend to talk about that. It's, it's, it's classic, like, <laughs> you know, like what's, what's, what's so shocking, so. Now, do you get that from black people as well? I have, and you, you wanna know what's really interesting? Um, that uh, I have some black patients that will call me miss, but they will call our white nurse practitioners doctor. And even um, I've seen some staff do that with me where um, they will call me Miss Turner, but they'll address our nurse practitioner as Dr. Such and Such. Um, you know, and at first I didn't want to correct anybody like, no, should I be nice about it? I remember my mentor was like, no, you need to correct people. Nothing wrong with that. You went to school all these many years. In 13 years, <laughs> you gonna right, call but, me doctor. But to me, but to me, you know, first I was thinking like I didn't want it to be like, oh, I'm better than you. But I get what she's saying. She's, you know, you worked hard for it. Um, and I think in some people, and these are these are black people. Um, I think for some people, I have no idea why, but I will say um, I feel like there's more blacks that will say Miss Turner. Um, than Dr. Turner, at least where I'm at. Now, I have had some whites that would say Miss Turner, um, you know, and I've learned to politely, you know, correct somebody and not make it seem like I'm all heady or uptight, but I get it, you know. Um, but it's interesting that my, you know, white nurse practitioners who, they're, they're great, I love working with them, you know, they automatically get accused of being a doctor. Um, you know, they get called doctor such and such. <laughs> Have you ever had anyone who has refused to be treated by you, a doctor? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've had um, a black and white patient who uh, did that. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> okay. Okay. yeah. And um, the black patient, she was older and um, she was trying to be subtle with it. And she just she wanted, wanted the guy to with see. the colder ice, the guy, the white guy's cold ice. Yeah, she wanted to see. Yeah, she just wanted to be <laughs> subtle with it. Yeah. You know, and, and I was like, you know, and I was like, you know what, that's, that's fine. If you, if you feel like, you know, white doctor is smarter, you know, I didn't argue, but you can definitely tell just kind of how I was going that she preferred to see um, my white counterpart. And so I just set the follow up with the white doctor she wanted to see. Um, now I will say some of the residents have had experience um, with some white patients just being blatant and saying, I don't want to see that black, you know, and that person got discharged from the clinic. Um, you know, and I will say my clinic has a We'll save you the trouble. We don't, you don't see the white yeah. one either. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to see anybody. Yeah, you're not going to see anybody at all. So, um, yeah. So I, yeah, so I will say, um, yeah, and then the, yeah, I was shocked with the the black lady. I was shocked, but you, you can pick up on it. You, you can tell. And I would say with the, um, the other one, it was a white male, older white male who um, kept, you know, he, you know, made statements that he didn't want to see a black doctor, this is Annette. And so it, it, anyways, I would say, I thankfully my clinic have no tolerance for things like that. And so um, he was, you know, discharged as well. So like I, said, I do feel like, you know, I'm, I, I am empowered to speak up on things like that and also to help protect our uh, 
um, residents and medical students. So, you know, if something happened, they can come and talk to me about it and we can, you know, take action. They don't have to hold on to that internally. Very good. Yeah. Are you good for time? Are you good for time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty, yeah, I'm pretty good for time. I, I'll yeah. try to let you go, but I'm just always so fascinated when I talk to you. So oh, we had, thank you. We had talked before about um, uh, kind of the, the comparative history between law enforcement in the medical field as far as, you know, I, I as a law enforcement official, black law enforcement official, w was, have been accused, and many black people get this, as, you know, you're, you're part of the system, you know, uh, you're, you're a gatekeeper of white supremacy, how can you do this, you're a sellout, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and so, is there same type of thinking within the medical field? Because the medical field obviously did experiments on us uh, at one time, uh, this idiot doctor from from France wanted to go to Africa. Africa to do the back. Yeah, that was. I was like, I yeah. In twenty twenty, we still got to fight for stuff like that. No, I I yeah, I agree. I think um um, I guess where you're getting at um, I fuck, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, I, I would say I think for me, um, there was one reason why I wanted to go into medicine. I kind of felt like, um. You know that our community they do need um you know i'm an advocate for health and that relatability factor with me being a black doctor you can relate to me i can understand some of the struggles some of the things that our community go through um you know that was, that was one of the reasons why i wanted to stay working in the urban um, um area i didn't want to go into you know specialty medicine i want to stick with primary care um just because i saw that need and i be able to build that relationship with the community with people to be able to trust me as a doctor was saying you know what your blood pressure is pretty high i do think you need a medicine um because a lot you know in our community you know you may hear you know i don't want to take any medicines or doctors just prescribing i'm on 20 different medicines don't know which one is working but i like for my patients to know why am i prescribing something for you and i always let them ask me whatever questions you know before you walk out of here i want all your questions answered um, and I don't want it to be anything where you get home and thinking I'm trying to kill you. You know, I, I want, I mean, cause I mean, cause seriously, you, you have people who don't say anything and then when they get home, they don't start the medicine. So you come back to me and you say, well, why you didn't start your diabetes medicine? You know, and if you don't address those concerns up front, you're never going to, it's going to be a difficult time for you to get on top of or get ahead of the, the disease process that's, that's at, that's at bay. And so, uh, for me, like I said, I, I am really passionate about helping our community and that's why. You know, when I went through medical school, I wanted to stay in an urban center. So one thing means working in an urban center, I don't make as much money as some of my counterparts. So let's say if I want to do specialty medicine, you know, probably make a good three, three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand dollars. I want to be a surgeon or, you know, dermatologist, anesthesia, something along those lines. So primary care doctors in general don't make as much. Um, and then if you come down to working in a private setting versus working, you know, at a at an FQHC you know, you don't make as much money. And for me, it was job satisfaction. You know, I want people who um, don't have insurance, um, underinsured, um, you know, poverty, low socioeconomic status, that's the population that I wanted to reach and work with. And so, um, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's why I, I, chose, I chose this journey. <laughs> Very nice. Um, so th that part that you talked about um, uh, being 
going through the system, I, I guess what I want to ask is, was there any discouragement along the way? People actively discourage law, people from joining the law enforcement. Don't join the military. Oh. Don't join the law enforcement. Did you ever, anyone ever say to you, you know, don't join the, 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 the medical field because all they do is experiment on people. All they do is try to take your money. All they try to do is yeah. stuff no, you for the I drugs. Did. Yeah, I didn't. Um, and I think probably because I didn't really discuss with, with everyone. I think, you know, my biggest thing, I had my daughter. So the biggest thing was, you know, I would say, I think uh, when I got pregnant, there was some concern for my father. Um, he passed a few years ago, but I remember when I got pregnant, he was concerned that I wasn't going to, you know, finish my dreams out and I was going to stop with school. And, you know, that was his biggest thing. And I think he saw that, you know, I continue to, 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 to um, pursue my career. Um, and then he was fine. So I just remember at the beginning, when I got pregnant, but he still didn't dis discourage me. He was just kind of concerned, thinking that I wasn't going to, you know, finish out. I was going to change my mind and do a different career path. Um, and, and I didn't, so. Okay, very good. So to all the young Black people, Hispanic people, even white people, mm -hmm. male and female, tell us about the white, well, you wouldn't do it again as far as 13 years. <laughs> But tell, but tell, somebody yeah, got somebody got to do it. Somebody got to do it. I don't want to discourage anybody. Let me. No, I, I would say this: if 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 you want to go to medical school, just know it's a journey. It's not it's not going to be a quick in and out. I mean, it's going to take some years, some sacrifice. Um, the biggest thing I tell incoming medical students: so the biggest issue to come up, you know, um, a lot of us as women want to get married, want to have kids. You know, I, I tell people that first year. Um, especially a lot of the, the black women when I'm mentoring them this time to get involved in a relationship um, because the demands on your time either that guy's gonna get upset you're gonna get off focus trying to please too many people um, and I know that was that was actually knowledge that was given to me too that you know if you're not coming in married or already engaged hold off don't even <laughs> and and I will say medicine take up a lot of your time it, it is you know, that show to say married to the medicine, that is true. You are actually married to this career, no matter what your background is, whether you're white, black, or what. If you enter a career in medicine, that you, you're going to sleep, eat, breathe medicine for years. Um, and it doesn't stop once you graduate. You know, medicine's constantly changing. New things are coming out. New medicines are coming up. You have to stay on top of all of that reading. So just because you finish medical school and residency, your learning doesn't stop. I mean, things may ease up, you know, you're able to, you know, um, get a family and all that, but going through the process, I tell people, you know, hold off on, on, um, and on getting, uh, you know, getting jumped into relationships. And I will say it was 10 of us that started out by the time we graduated, it was only five. Um, we had, uh, one actually, um, he stopped and ended up doing something else. Um, it was, I think another one kind of struggled a little bit with class, so she was a year behind me. And I think another one actually stopped her third year. I think maybe only two or three actually came out a year or two behind me, but 10 of us started, only five of us finished um, with that. And I don't know what the stats are behind it. So it, it, it is dedication. Anybody, I think you can do it if somebody really wanna go after that. Um, be organized, be focused, don't let anybody get you off track. You know, if somebody finds themselves in a relationship that's unhealthy, you don't need it. You're trying to pursue your career. You know, you may have to leave that person alone. Um, and I, I would say a lot of people, I think, started getting engaged. If you, if you didn't come in already married or engaged, I feel like maybe your third or fourth year in medicine, uh, in medical school, um, people were, you know, hooking up and, 
you know, by the time you, you know, graduated medical school, started residency, by that time people, you know, were engaged and things like that. So I think across the board, those first two years, at least first one to three years, you need to really focus on your studies. Um, and and those, those things will come. I think that's the biggest thing, I think, for women um, going into medicine that, uh, that, that uh, having kids is, is um, you know, if you don't start off, a lot of doctors have kids once they finish. So a lot of us are 33, 34, 35, having our first child, you know, when others are starting younger. So for me, like I said, I had my daughter, I was 20, but you know, if I want to have more kids, I mean, I'm 34 now, you know, if I decide to have more kids, you know, that's going to be, you know, 34, 35, 36. So that's the other thing too, that, you know, you may end up having kids a little bit later and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, who, you know, that society that set that standard as to when a woman should have kids and get married, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay with it. I wouldn't force my daughter and say, well, you better be married by your 22. Like, no, you know. Very good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate talking to you. I, I could talk to you all day. There was something else I wanted to talk to you about. You like take notes. and I, <laughs> I, you, you, know, know, you have some really good questions. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. I, <laughs> you're just interesting to talk to. and. Um, but I'll save it for another time. I'll have you back on. I'm about to give you okay. like the, the co-host label there. You'd be Captain Hunter's co-host there. I don't, I don't <laughs> awesome. So, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, really, thank really you. Thanks for having me again. This this was great. I love talking about this. And yeah. hopefully it can be encouraging to somebody. I hope I didn't discourage anybody. <laughs> no, listen, listen, you know what? We have to get to the point. And the reason I want to have you on, the reason I'm doing the show is because I want us to, to, to really look at the long-term goal. And we really have to focus on whether we come in law enforcement, become doctors, become lawyers, become astronauts. We can't, we can't allow circumstances and situations to, to derail us. And I like what you said, you know, I talked to one of my daughter's friends, my daughter's 22 and her friends are essentially 20, 22, early twenties. And she was telling me that she wanted to be a doctor too. So I, like I said, I was going to the eye doctor. And so I talked to my eye doctor and she's a, she's a lady. And so she had a bunch, she had two kids. So I, so I actually got to, got her number, right? She's telling me, okay, I'll give my number and tell your friend to, you know, your daughter's friend to call me. So I go through all this trouble because I want my daughter's friend to, to, to pursue this line of work that she wants to do. Yeah. She, she, she doesn't call her. So now I feel like a fool, but, but we, we have to, we have to push through our hopes, our dreams. Yeah. We got to get by this, all this kind of stuff. And I, and I enjoyed your story about persevering through uh, um, sexism, racism this is this is what we go through right this yeah, is what it we, is it it's, is it's what we go through everything and is not it was a, a bed of flowers so yeah and yeah. we have to go and, through know, it and i think the other thing too you know i tell people get a mentor you know that's one thing i love being mentors people come behind me get a mentor somebody you can you know talk to and um confide in because things are going to come even i'm actually my mentor the one dean i was telling about that retired him up and run things by him and, you know, this has been since 2010, but I trust them. And I will call them up even now and just say, can I run this by you? What do you think about this? You know, like get a mentor that's going to be there for you. You may not have to talk all the time, but I think having, um, there's a lot of benefit with having a mentor, somebody who's been there, done that. So you don't feel like you're alone. Because if you don't talk to anybody, you may think this is something unique to you or may not even know how to navigate the system. You know, that's why I said I really you know, um, thank the the doctor I had worked for in the lab because I, I didn't know and I didn't talk to, you know, about spending the money to do that. I had no idea, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and a lot of times our, our community, we're not exposed to the wealth. We're not exposed to, you know, the, the, the higher up education. You know, we, we may not be exposed to that. And it's just, like I said, you know, it's really the tips and, tr and secrets. Like you talked about, 
and we talked about the MCATs and the SATs, it's other people are not smarter than us. They just have access to things and resources. The resources that we don't, yeah. And, that we don't, and as you mentioned. Or that we don't know about. I said that, that we, we don't, don't know about. about. Yeah. And, yeah. and as, and, you know, the wordings of these things, as we talked about the, the, the porch and veranda and the, the couch and the sofa, you know. And yeah. Even the thing with this stimulus money, like I, I, I've been hearing stories that um, people got the money back and at Walmart buying TVs and, <laughs> You know, I'm not surprised at that. Alcohol, you know, but I'm it's kind of like, <laughs> well, part of that, if we know we in times like this, why not save it? You know, open up a savings account to earn interest on it or put it into an account that can earn interest, you know, things like that. That, But you can't, maybe they just don't know of, you know, trying to uh, uh, achieve financial freedom or, you know, obtain wealth. But that, stimul that was extra money. Why not set it aside for a rainy day for just in case something come up? You know, or put it in something that can earn interest and grow. You know, and, and, you know, I, I even I, I think that that can be a whole nother. You can have somebody else just come on and talk about just the whole generational wealth thing. Well, I've, mm -hmm. I've actually reached out to a couple of people. I did have someone to, to come on and talk about uh, repairing your credit, but I am looking to have someone come on about talk about generational wealth type of thing. But the problem yeah, is that yeah, like forex trading and yeah, investing in stocks and yeah, yeah, all yeah, a lot of, of times stuff. those those people like to get paid, and I can't pay anyone. Oh, really? <laughs> well, some, sometimes. So I, I've reached out to one or two. I haven't heard back yet. Um, but but it is something that I, that I want to do. Listen, I'm not going to do all that because I think that our community needs it. As, you, as we talked about, we, we, there's a lot of things that we don't know. We've been put into this bubble. That, that whole redlining thing wasn't just redlining of our physical presence, right? Yeah. But it, it was redlining of our minds and mentalities, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to break out of that. And so we have yeah. to repair our credit, look into generational wealth, um, I, I, I'm going to have someone going to come on uh, who's going to talk about um, uh, the whole reparations thing. And we, 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 not that we don't deserve it, but we should not get any check from the government because we're just going to go buy TVs, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so until we, yeah. until, we, until we repair our minds uh, and understand that there's, yeah. you know, you know, we need to open a business. We, we, we can talk about this all day, but what we really right. need a different mentality is to, we can't just get expect, okay, you had 400 years of, of well, 296 years of slavery, 100 years of Jim Crow, and okay, here's, a, we're going to give every black person in the country $5 million. We'll, in, in, in an hour, it'll be right back in white people's hands. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so it's, 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 it's a conversation that we need to have. So Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. Well, thank you so much. I always enjoy it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to reach out to you again. This is not the first, last okay. time talking. So Perfect. All right. Take, take Thanks. Have a good day. Oh, yeah,